Hello and welcome to the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight we have for the first time Dr. Michael Vrakar teaching us. We're going to get back into the Old Testament, our story series, with an incredible night with 10 prophets. And so we're going to be looking at the prophets before the exile. So there's 10 different prophets that we're going to cover in one night, starting with Isaiah and ending with Oh, why did I say that? Maybe Nahum, maybe Habakkuk, um, maybe Zechariah. I'm not exactly sure. I'll be honest, the prophets aren't an area that I've spent a lot of time with. Um, Obviously, we have typically the prophets separated into major and minor prophets. We're actually going to separate them um, by their reference to the exile, and so more chronologically. I think you'll find that that's an interesting way to look at them. And again, since we're covering 10 in one night, as we have with this Old Testament series, you know, we're covering a lot in one night, we're going to look at it more from a 30,000 foot view, more from a summary style or a thematic uh, style. And so um, it's an incredible lesson. I've, I've heard it once already. And Michael is a really impressive guy, a dentist in the South Haven area, and his wife and he come to this group. And he's going to teach tonight, and I'm certain he'll do a wonderful job summarizing all this and giving you a small picture into 10 different prophets from the Old Testament. So that was an extremely long intro, which seems to fit with 10 prophets tonight. So let's jump in right now with Michael as he teaches on the prophets before the exile. Thank you. Yeah, so we have a pretty big task ahead of us. So, um, But some of it's pretty cool, and you, you, some of this will be familiar, and some of it will hopefully be a little bit new. But uh, I had a lot of this information um, from what Kyle and David sent me from, from their church, and so a, a lot of this is, has been reused, and it's just awesome. I was trying to look at how I can make it better, and gosh, I, I couldn't really think of a way, so I tried to just put it in the format that could be easily understood. Uh, but we'll jump through or jump into this and get started. And I'll try to stick to the, the script as much as I can just so we can stay on time so you guys aren't here until 11 o'clock unless you want to. So we'll get started. So just a little intro. So we're doing the prophets before the exile. Okay. So at first we start with the kingdom divided. So originally in 930 BC, uh, Israel was one nation until the reign of Rehoboam. So it was one of Solomon's sons. And due to the mishandling of some economic complaints, uh, the kingdom split into two. And so we have Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and we have Judah, the southern kingdom. And so this can be really confusing at times, but both are still referred to as the people of God or God's chosen people. So when you guys are reading through this, it still applies to both. And you'll see that a lot of these prophets uh, end up maybe speaking to Judah, but it, it applies to both. So it's one thing that I kind of got confused on, but overall, it's still talking to God's people. Yeah, it's just a little picture. So we're going to first talk about Isaiah. So just a little background. It's, so Isaiah is referred to as the messianic prophet or the prince of prophets. Uh, He's thought to be the author of at least, uh, or most of the book of Isaiah. Um, I think it starts to get, uh, it's most likely that he went through chapter 39, and then his disciples kind of took it over afterwards, just because uh, afterwards you start to get after the exile, and I mean, they kind of date it like 150 years later, so unless he lived to be really, really old, he probably didn't write the rest of the book. Um, He's the most quoted Old Testament prophet by the New Testament. 
uh, very well connected to the lines of kings and priests. Uh, uh, pretty neat that he served under four different kings of Judah. Uh, not many prophets had that happen, so uh, he has a pretty interesting perspective of things. Uh, and during this, his time, there was, uh, it was really a time of great turmoil for the nation of Judah. And so the players that are in this, and that you'll hear me kind of say over and over, so we have Judah, which is the southern kingdom, we have Israel, the northern, we have Syria, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, okay? And so basically, just to give kind of the run through with it, so Israel and Syria are getting attacked by Assyria, okay? Israel and Syria ask Judah for aid, and Judah refuses, and so Israel and Syria attack Judah, okay? So the northern going down, fighting southern. So uh, Judah actually wins, though, So Judah because Judah asked for Assyria's help with it, who was bad news, and so they started, they pretty much partnered with the bad guys. And so their plan backfires big time, and the Assyrians start to take over Judah then afterwards. And so Isaiah prophesies that God would deliver them, and Assyria withdraws from Judah, but Babylonian captivity is coming. Okay, so it's divided into two distinct sections, like I said, chapters 1 through 39, which is leading up to the Babylonian exile, and then chapters 40 to 66 is after the Babylonian exile. So some of the major themes here, and by the way, it was not Isaiah Thomas, which is... Is it, that a video game, Isaiah Thomas, or is that actually... No, that's actually, yeah. I always, every time I think Isaiah, I always think of that one. Not the older Isaiah Thomas basketball player. Yeah. So some of the major themes. So judgment is coming. Uh, God uses Assyria and Babylon to punish the nation of Israel for their wickedness, but through suffering and death is working toward salvation. And so this is kind of going through its purification by fire. And so you'll see this theme. It's not just about destruction. God has a bigger plan in store, except for the Edomites, which I'll get to that. God uses the most arrogant, wicked nations as judgment for Israel to thin them down to the faithful remnant, or what's also known as the holy seed. Then he destroys the wicked nations to demonstrate his power. So an example of this is God brings up Persia to destroy Babylon after Israel's exile is over. And what you'll end up seeing is God using these other evil nations to purify his people, but in return, not let them really live up to kind of their name or live up to what they think is, oh, it's us doing this, it's our power. Ultimately, God is in control. And so really what this gives us is a message of hope in the book. Uh, it's If you really look at Isaiah's vision of the burning coal, uh, it really talks about it. It's, it's really portraying how the Messiah will bring in ultimate victory through suffering death. And all this turmoil of the nations is pointing toward establishing a new king and a new Jerusalem. So to summarize the book of Isaiah, it's, it's a book of paradoxes. So we see two sides of God's character. We, or really, we just see the dynamic, really. We see mercy and judgment. We see grace and discipline. We see forgiveness and justice. And really, resolution of this tension between the two sides lies on us. And so if we have faith, that's going to lead to the mercy, the grace, and the forgiveness. Yet, but, or, but if we have unbelief, well, we're going to get into judgment, discipline, and justice. Moving on to Hosea. So Hosea, he was a prophet of, to the northern kingdom, 
Israel, as Jeremiah was to the southern kingdom, Judah. So he was a contemporary of Isaiah, Amos, and Micah, and he warned Israel of the coming captivity of Assyria. He demonstrated God's relationship to Israel, and it was written over a 25-year period. Some of the major themes, it, this book is unique because it ties in so much of his personal life to it. And so trying to think about his story, it's just kind of hard for me to understand. So basically, God commands Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And no, it's not Gomer Pyle. So Gomer cheats on Hosea, but when she is left by the man with whom she cheated with, God commands Hosea to go back to go buy Gomer back at a price. So not only does she cheat on him, he actually goes and has to pay for her as well. And it's, it's crazy to think about this, but really what this is is a demonstration of God's relationship with Israel. And so God, being the faithful husband, gives his children everything. But Israel, being the unfaithful spouse, is led astray and starts worshiping idols. So God could end his covenant with his chosen people, but instead he agrees to renew the covenant and pursue his people again. And excuse me, why does he do this? It's because of his divine nature. It's because of his love, his compassion, his faithfulness. So in summary, Hosea, in the same way that, that God's love uh, will not quit on his people, as including Israel, God's love for us comes in the form of his constant pursuit of relationship with us. So moving on to the book of Joel. So we don't really know exactly when Joel was written. They've kind of guessed anywhere from 835 to 538. Not really sure where. He's one of the lesser known prophets. He also prophesied to Judah, southern kingdom. Was very familiar with temple worship, so he likely lived in Jerusalem, which was in the southern kingdom. Uh, one of the earliest writing prophets, which is interesting. The, I think the, the, the hardest part, I, I can imagine if I was a prophet, was that he prophesied during the reign of the seven-year-old uh, King Joash. And so if you can imagine a king being seven years old and being in charge of the kingdom, kind of crazy. And so I don't know how I could be as patient as maybe he was. But anyways, uh, Joash was under the influence of his father and grandmother, and pagan idol worship really began to flourish at the time. Some of the themes, so Joel really urges the people of Judah to turn back to God, um, and he gives some of the most vivid descriptions of God's judgment to come. I'll get to that picture up there in a little bit. Pretty neat story with it. So some of, some of the verses that you hear is like days cloaked in darkness, armies that conquer like consuming fire, the moon turning to blood. So Joel uses a recent, he even uses a recent locust plague uh, as an illustration of the destruction that is to come as a warning to God's people of the consequences of continuing to embrace their wicked practices. So in summary, Joel is using a strong dose of apocalyptic imagery that might just do the trick of opening your eyes to the necessity of faithfully following after God every moment of your life. Uh, just real quick pitch. So this, is, this picture was actually done by one of my buddies. Uh, it was charcoal and he just kind of, he, he blew the picture up on the TV and just ended up kind of copying it from the Passion. 
So really cool. I just thought that it showed kind of that vivid imagery, just a way that you can think about Joel. So moving on to Amos. Can you pause it on that for just a second, a little timeline? Sure. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> and go. So moving on to the book of Amos. So just some information. He was a shepherd uh, from Judah. And what's interesting is we, we don't really have, he doesn't really have any known ministry credentials. Uh, it was written during a time of economic prosperity in Israel due to the military conquests of King Jeroboam. But the nation's moral fiber was disintegrating from within. So there was lots of extravagance, indulgence, corruption of the judicial system, and oppression of the poor, which is really what the, the big theme that he ended up hitting on. So in response to materialism, Amos gives God's perspective on some volatile social issues, such as the treatment of the poor. So many were exploiting the poor, and so Amos describes God's special interest in the disadvantaged. And so in, in chapter 5, verse 24, he says, But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And really what this was trying to portray was that what, what's going to happen is that the righteousness of God is going to just be so overwhelming that it cannot be contained like a stream. And so that it will just end up overcoming this, this social injustice that's occurring. And so the other bigger point uh, that I thought was their worship was empty. And so he, he would say there's, their songs were hollow. Uh, he even said in, in verse 21 that um, I cannot stand, this was God saying through Amos, I cannot stand your assemblies, which is crazy to think about even nowadays if we have our churches or even like our meetings, that if God would actually through somebody say, I cannot stand your church, or like, I cannot stand your Bible study or your meeting. It's like, man, and really what he's trying to get to is that he, he wants them, it wants it to be more so than just this outer appearance, okay? And so just like how we, how we read more than just whitewashed tombs, you know, that Jesus talks about. We need something on the inside. We need some substance in there. So to summarize, Amos reminds us that works such as preaching, teaching, worshiping, uh, while unquestionably central to a believer's life, they ultimately ring hollow when we don't love and serve others in our own lives. And Kyle, go. Uh, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> way over. Or maybe not. Move it up. It's interesting, like, there was one, Hosea is like, definitely 715 BC. Like, yeah. Like a 300-year span, yeah. yeah. And then one, it's exact date. So moving on to Obadiah. So also don't really know exactly when, but some of the general information. Uh, we actually know nothing about Obadiah other than he wrote this book. Um, so his name does mean worshiper of Yahweh or servant of the Lord. So he's probably on the right side of things. Uh, it's actually the shortest book in the Old Testament. So if you were looking to knock out a book for your daily reading, then I would recommend Obadiah. Uh, so Obadiah, Nahum, and uh, Habakkuk are the only prophets that actually prophesied to other nations. So Ob Obadiah actually prophesied to Edom. 
<clears throat> Some of the major themes. So God was angry at the nation of Edom. And if you remember, Edom was actually made of the descendants of Esau. Okay, so Jacob's brother. Okay, and Edom was Israel's neighboring country. And what, what they actually did was pretty screwed up. So what they would do is while other nations were invading Israel, what, what Edom would end up doing is just kind of waiting for the Israelites to flee as they were leaving, as they were being invaded. And then they would pretty much ransack them, kill them, steal all their stuff while they're pretty much beating them while they're already down. Okay. And God wasn't too cool with that. So God was angry at, at, at the nation of Edom. And it was basically because they were just being really mean. It was just being way too opportunistic in a, in a bad way. And so basically God is just saying like, you don't get between me and my people. And so as punishment for their actions against Israel, God wipes them out by the first century AD. So there are no Edomites mentioned after that time period. And in summary, Edom's behavior is a symptom of this broader disease that, that we see in our human condition. And just as Edom received the brunt of God's justice, in the same way God will deal with sin when his kingdom returns. Going on to Jonah. I probably say Jonah is one of my favorites here, and it's not because he was super awesome. And growing up, I always thought that, oh, Jonah was really cool. He you know, got swallowed by a whale, and then he ended up surviving. Man, he's, he must be a really cool dude. But looking into it, like he, he's kind of a jerk. Wait. I just have to insert and say, like, all these characters you read about, you're like, these are like the best BBS that's right. <laughs> We're just saying, I mean, Sam's, I mean, that makes such a great movie. If you really, like, yeah, I don't know if there is a full-length movie, but like, probably not, not nothing worth watching. But yeah, you're, you're right. It's going to be pretty entertaining. It might be a little bit inappropriate, but yeah. You're probably not wrong. Next episode of Two Ryans. Sorry. <laughs> nope, we're good. So Jonah. So he has a unique narrative format as compared to the other prophets. Uh, Jonah was actually a reluctant prophet that felt that, that felt God was being too nice and merciful, which is crazy because today, you, if you ask anybody that would kind of be mad at God, it, it wouldn't be because he was too nice or too merciful. It was kind of, it would be the exact opposite. So really interesting perspective. So the story kind of goes like this. God asked Jonah to prophesy to the Ninevites. Jonah tries to run away on a ship, but a storm arises and sailors get suspicious or superstitious and find out that Jonah is a prophet of God. Jonah says to overthrow or to throw me overboard to see if that helps. And the sailors reluctantly do so. Fish swallows Jonah. Jonah prays. Fish vomits him back out on land. Jonah preaches to Nineveh. Five words in Hebrew. So it translates to eight words in English, which were 40 more days and Nineveh shall be overturned. Nineveh then repents just off of those words, okay? Basically, the, the word was turn over, okay? When it says overturned, it's kind of interesting when you, when you look at that, that Jonah, even though he was going into this whole thing with the wrong attitude, wrong heart, 
prophesied just these few words. It's just kind of like, hey, repent. You know, and you would think that it was kind of be the Sermon on the Mount or something that would be spectacular. It's just this barely a sentence. And yet his prophecy comes true because there's two different meanings to overturned, whether it, it would be, um, whether they'd be overruled, okay, by another nation, or it would be actually turning their heart and repenting. And so while he didn't care and didn't want God to uh, forgive them and show mercy, they ended up repenting and God showed mercy. Uh, so some of the major themes here is, is no one is so far gone beyond hope. So which is the interesting dynamic in, in this story because the man of God is actually, like we said, the reluctant prophets and the one that is just like not really being a Christian, like not really living up to it. Yet everybody else that you were to expect to be kind of of this world or not really act Christian or Jewish or whatever it may have been for the time, you know, it's like, what's going on? Like, how are they the ones who are turning their hearts so easily and turning to God and relying on God? Anyways, God wants to extend grace and mercy to even the worst of people. And God uses a reluctant prophet as his vehicle for grace. And in summary, Jonah serves as a mirror for us to examine our own attitudes about the extent of God's grace. You really need to, all of us really need to ask ourselves, are we okay with God loving our enemies, his enemies, enough to spare them punishment? But really, when we think about we, we better be because sin applies to us as well, and therefore we would also be God's enemy if we are in sin. <clears throat> Moving on to Micah. So his name means who is like the Lord and describes some of the most significant prophecies about Christ's birth. It tells of his birthplace in Bethlehem and of his eternal nature. It reminds us that he cares and offers hope for those who choose to remain faithful to him, even when he seems distant and uninvolved. Some of the major themes of Micah is that it's similar to Amos in, in warning Judah to pay special attention to those social justice issues, okay, and, and how we're treating the poor or how they were treating the poor. Assyria, who would eventually invade Israel, was notorious for their brutal and inhumane practices toward <laughs> Excuse you, or bless you, <laughs> toward, <laughs> toward, toward the refugees. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Will. <laughs> Not trying to be inhumane with you, I promise. So <laughs> let's back up. So Assyria, who would eventually uh, invade Israel, was notorious for their brutal and inhumane practices toward refugees. And so this is likely this likely influenced this message of Micah toward these social justice issues or injustice. Really, um, it, it, a lot of it came down to just how when, when we say like how they would treat the poor, they would basically just what they would do is end up just if they were working for them. So they would turn into instead of working for a wage, it was basically just servitude where they wouldn't pay them they would just work for them what they'd end up doing is if they had land they would actually the more powerful more rich people would just end up selling their land even though they didn't own it to somebody else which was already against the law and so kind of kind of bad stuff that was going on but basically the summary of Micah is that his message is just never fail to recognize the opportunities to help the downtrodden in society
We're getting there. Moving on to Nahum. That verse is like the most popular verse ever. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, we just read that real quick. That's good. So Micah 6, 8, and it kind of summarizes what we just talked about. So it's just saying, how, what, what is our, our perspective on things and how are, we, how are we to live? And it just says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So Nahum, it means comfort, but otherwise, again, an unknown prophet. Uh, this was another one of the books that was addressed to another nation besides God's chosen people. And so this addresses the Assyrians of Nineveh, getting back to Nineveh, and if you remember Jonah, who went there before. So the Assyrians had repented 150 years back when Jonah prophesied to them, but they have now fallen away since, and in response, God sends Nahum. And at that time, Assyria had a stranglehold on Judah through the, through the puppet king, Manasseh. So Nahum's message was basically warning uh, Assyria and that what this was doing was really giving Judah some encouragement that their primary oppressor would be judged soon by God. Um, and, and it's kind of the, the themes here is basically that God is in control of history and that he will not allow evil to persist forever. So like we talked about earlier, God may allow evil to persist for a time, or he may use an evil nation, but ultimately they will not continue their reign. God ultimately reigns. And so Nahum is the continuation of the story of Jonah. The only difference is the ending is completely different. So Assyria is conquered eventually by the Babylonians. They don't end up repenting. They are actually overturned just on the other side of things now. So in summary, what, in what appears to be the darkest period of Israel and Judah's history, Nahum offers a message of hope that this too shall pass. Similarly, God's present-day chosen people can feel encouraged that fatigue from spiritual and cultural resistance of sin will one day be rewarded. Moving on to Habakkuk. So he was a prophet to the nation of Judah, again, the southern nation, or southern kingdom, sorry, Hopefully we can get that down because I know that was really confusing for me. I don't know why it was so confusing. Now when I look back, it was like, it wasn't that hard. But came, it, it came along when things in Judah were really bad. And so children were being sacrificed to pagan gods. Uh, King uh, Jehoiakim, was, who was really evil, refused to listen to prophets and even had them arrested and are murdered and even had their writings burned. So I don't know which would be worse, if you are lit on fire or if you're writings that you work so hard on were right in probably. <laughs> and so uh, most of the prophets, what's interesting about Habakkuk is, is most of the prophets um, would speak to the people on God's behalf, but what's different in, in this is that Habakkuk spoke to God on the people's behalf. And so he would ask God, how can a just God ignore injustice? And why does he allow the wicked to prosper? And can a God or can a good God use evil to accomplish his purposes? All very valid questions that we still ask today and have asked in this group in the past. Some of the major themes is God has a plan to deal with evil in the world as much as we might, even though we might feel at times like we are on our own and that he isn't in control or we have a better way of doing something or we can think of a better way to handle things. Uh, Ultimately, it's, 
it's God just showing us that he is in control, he is sovereign, he has a plan. And that Habakkuk really becomes an example that the righteous shall live by faith. So in summary, the book of Habakkuk reminds us that no place is too dark, no wall too thick for God's grace to penetrate in a powerful and life-affirming way. Almost there. Lastly is Zephaniah. So he was a prophet to the people of Judah, again, southern kingdom. And so he was a descendant from one of Israel's good kings, Hezekiah. Some of the major themes were very similar to the other books, if you haven't gotten it by now. It's basically balancing judgment or justice, and judgment does not have an E, I learned. It is just a G, I learned. Verse salvation, okay, or love with God's people. And so the nations um, falling are, are not meant solely for destruction. Like I said before, like God has a, a bigger plan in mind. It's not just to punish, but rather to purify. And so he warns of the impeding judgment if they do not repent, a constant theme. So God still gives us the opportunity, and God gave his chosen people an opportunity, even though he may have known what their decision was going to be. It's ultimately still up to us. And so he predicts that justice would prevail and all humankind will worship God. And so in summary, if you basically, if you haven't got it about now, it's basically what all the other books have been telling us. So concluding all this and wrapping it all up, so it's hard to separate the prophetic books of the Bible without keeping the end game in sight. And yes, I think of Marvel's end game, which I think is going to be the next title in it and be the final chapter, maybe, not hopefully, but hopefully. No, it's the final chapter in But anyways, God has this end game in sight. So just like how these directors kind of know where this is going, or hopefully they kind of know where this was going from the start, that's kind of what's going on with God. And so much of the end game in the story of God's chosen people is best summarized in the last half of Isaiah. If you check that out, again, that was 40 to 66. Uh, God will remove the wicked from his city forever now. It's not just going to be the wicked people at that time that which, which he used Assyria and then used Babylon to take over. This will be removed forever in his new kingdom. So his servants will inherit the new Jerusalem. And people of all nations are invited to join in God's covenant. And in these ways, the kingdom of God will be established on earth as it is in heaven. So basically, what all of these prophets are telling us is that God does not just let sin. Uh, there, there is a price for sin and that he will ultimately pay that price. But it just goes to show us that he will not let evil tolerate, or he will not tolerate evil forever. And that while there may be a time, whether that be hundreds of years or even a briefer period of time, he's still in control no matter who at that time thinks that they're in control and that he does have a plan from the beginning. And that's what we can kind of take these prophets into then the New Testament to see how the messianic prophecies that we've seen and that new kingdom that's to come ends up coming in Jesus and the fulfillment of them. And that's all 10 of the prophets before the exile. So, so Anna just got here and literally has filled in the blank that says all. All. She also got an game, sorry. I got an game, uh, but I was confusing that. I didn't hear it, actually. <laughs>
let's pause and then we'll uh, discuss. All right, I want to thank Michael for summarizing all 10 prophets tonight. I think in the intro I was completely wrong about who started and who ended that on the on the prophets, but man, it's a lot to keep uh, clear, and, and I was talking to Michael about this. As you read through the prophets, oftentimes you kind of get lost in the poetry of it all and kind of forget really what they're saying at all, and so I think it's really helpful to have this uh, sort of thematic uh, you know, version of a study like this. And so in basically 30 minutes, you can get a general idea of what each of these 10 prophets, uh, who they were speaking to, what they were speaking about. And you get the sort of continual thread of God and his people and what he wants for his people, which I think in a sense is God wants his people to be set apart. He wants them to be holy. And of course, as people are, uh, they're not holy, okay? So they continue to make mistakes. They continue to oppress the poor. They continue to go against the plans that God has for them and to try and establish good and evil for themselves and power on earth for themselves. And uh, it's a pretty sad story that repeats and repeats and repeats and still repeats today. Of course, as you look at these stories from thousands of years ago, and you study kind of God's people and what they were going through and how there were governments that came and governments that went and people that made mistakes. And uh, you see, I think, a lot of today's time in their time. And so it should act as a reminder that God's desires for his people have not changed. And also, unfortunately, God's people have not changed. Uh, we're sinful people that need God uh, to make us worthy and to make us righteous. Um, so I really enjoy this Old Testament study. I think it's something that we don't spend a lot of time on. One of our uh, uh, people here tonight, Kaylee, said that she's actually in a study on the prophets where they go into great depth into each prophet. And honestly, it's maybe the first time I've ever heard of such a thing. I think that certainly we ignore the prophets more than any other segment of the Bible, maybe the minor prophets most of all. So it's really cool to be able to study them and to learn something from that. Uh, we'll come back around to the prophets in a couple of weeks, but next week we're actually going to do a look at the wisdom and poetry literature, so Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and also Job. And we'll look a little bit at the different literary devices used in the Bible, which I think is helpful. Um, most of the prophets are going to be poetry. Um, of course, Jonah is in a narrative style. And, uh, and we'll look at you know, how Job is in a narrative style with some poetry. So sometimes it's mixed. And I think you'll really enjoy that aspect of it. So uh, I hope you'll return with us next week. Of course, you can come visit us if you like. Monday night, if you're a healthcare student uh, at my house here in Germantown, you can come visit us. Of course, you can always listen along. And if you're listening to this, it's been helpful to you. I would love it if you'd shoot me a message and just let me know. It would mean a lot to me to know you're out there listening. Um, and that's all I got. So thanks for tuning in. Hopefully you're having a great week and hopefully it gets even a lot better. And uh, hopefully this has been a blessing to you. My prayer is, is that you'll share this with someone else. Okay, so if you're out there studying for a lesson on a topic like this, hopefully you'll be able to glean something and be able to share that with someone else. Um, so that's it for us this week on the MDDDS podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.